BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Today's episode, High AI, Low IQ. In our deep dive today, does how we design language for our technology industry have a distinct diversity problem? Or are the systems themselves flawed in deeper, more terrifying ways? And in our Courage or Cringe section, Matthew McConaughey, the San Diego School District, and Facebook hate speech rules. Has Hollywood moved from liberal to illiberal? And what does that even mean? Should schools remove consequences and penalties for historically marginalized groups? And should enforcement of hate speech be uniformly enforced across groups? These and other scintillating topics on this episode of TDR. Jesus, welcome back. Thank you. I was saying I like the the preamble to the actual podcast. There should be a pre-podcast podcast. Should, should we call it uh, Diversity Remix The Ramble? Should that be called? No, no, like no. The, Diversity the, Remix Redux. You know Redux, what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, well, or whatever, whatever the pre means. But I, I like that. In fact, I did a, I forget which one it was, but I did an interview recently for a podcast and we had this like incredible five minute, 10 minute thing before. And then it was like, okay, here we go. We're going to record. And then it was like all very like, you know, welcome right. to the show. Right. So um, I like the... The one that's great. I don't know if you've ever seen... Um, they actually published these, uh, I think on YouTube, but with Trevor Noah, the Daily Show with Trevor mm-hmm. Noah, uh, he has these segments that are basically during the commercial breaks. This is, of course, when they had a live audience and, you know, before the current times. Right. Where he would just answer questions, tell stories, and then they started like sharing those... With the audience and the... That's yeah, cool. yeah, with the audience, so you can you can see like they're basically in like maybe between guests, whatever that is, right? Sure. I'm not sure exactly how they how they how much they shoot all at once or how they do it, but just answering questions, telling random stories, and they will publish those segments, and they were great. Yeah. Like I love the I the banter and just kind of hearing well, him tell these really random stories about stuff that happens, you know. So it's, it's really cool. Everybody's got their guard down; they're not thinking they're being recorded, which is right. another reason why I don't think we're yet ready for it on this podcast. But the the reason that video makes. Such a big difference. And when you catch your, you know you're on video. Yes, yeah, it changes the dynamic. And yeah. nobody wants to see me. Anyway, I have to get a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish I had hair to cut. There you go. That's our our mutual dilemmas. Okay, big topic today. Interesting topic. I admit I felt a little bit uneasy because of uh, the level of intelligence required to tackle it. I didn't feel I was up to the task because there's a lot of stuff that I'm out of my depth on. But uh, but let's get started. Well, we're gonna we're gonna try to work through it. This one. 
frankly caught my attention immediately, uh, this issue around artificial intelligence and specifically, um, you know, how diversity may play a role in, um, in how AI actually works um, and the inherent biases that are embedded into AI. Now, to be frank, the reason this one caught my attention is because I want to say maybe it was like right at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a report that I saw that came out around all the issues with facial recognitions. And there was a couple of different firms, which we'll get into in, in a second, but that were sort of getting taking you know, AI to a whole new level of being able to recognize people's faces and using multiple data sources across social and, and all over the place. So, and I just think it's an issue that when you think about the role that AI plays in our life now and how much is used across multiple technologies, it's a really, really big deal. It's a big deal. So and we're building the we're at the very beginning stages of this. Yeah, I think the other thing yeah. that freaked people out is all these uh, you know viral videos about a year ago or so about the, all the Boston Dynamics uh, robots and how all this stuff was working. And then I think it was Elon Musk, right, who was who was talking about like imagine plugging in this like nefarious AI into these robots that can move a thousand miles an hour. Right. And people were literally starting to think Terminator. I think there's like well, all a, kinds of stuff. Also, to be fair, I've watched that movie way too many times. I'm a big fan. Terminator. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's like a hundred. It's funny because I I watched the original and then the sequel, but I just watched whatever the latest one was like this weekend. It's gotten more ridiculous. On a total lark. It was ridiculous. There's always, but it's still fun. It's still fun. It's still still fun. All right. So let's get into it. Now, this all came to light this this past week because a paper that was co-authored by formal Google AI ethicists. And by the way, the fact that there is an AI ethicist is a sort of not first, just one. Yeah, it's multiple, but but there was <laughs> this one in particular, Timnit uh, Timnit Gebru. Um, she wrote this, co-authored this paper. It raised some tough questions uh, for Google about whether AI language models were maybe too big, and of course whether the tech companies are doing enough to reduce potential risks. Now, right? what is an AI language model? To the extent you know what what that is, I have a thought, and, and but we'll, I don't know. We'll if it's get right. into that. Uh, okay. I mean, so we we can talk about that now. The the AI model that Google created. Um, is one of them is called BERT, B-E-R-T, right? And it was it was uh, done in 2018. Now, BERT, and I'll give you exactly what it means, is a bidirectional encoder representations from transformers. Now, what does this all mean? I have no clue. It's actually a technique that they use for natural long language processing, pre-training for contextual representation, right? And now I was looking at the Google site, and I think it's actually really so, a really good example yeah. of this, right? So think about using search, right? And you're searching, and the example they gave is use the word bank, now, depending on how you're using the word bank, it can have a very different meaning in terms of what you're actually searching for. Bank account or bank of the river or nice. made the bank like as a term, right. right? So what what this language does, this, this pre-training, it actually looks at words before and after to give context to what you're actually searching for. Does that make sense? Yes. So, But, but in that case, the application is strictly search. So in other words, the way that they program search, they add a kind of context layer so that when you type into the machine you know, into the computer, I shot myself in the foot. It doesn't give you a result that says ER, the hospital room. It gives you a result that says, you know, when you make a bad... Well, that's you know, part of the challenge, right? Because also how we look language, how we use language, uh, sometimes we mean exactly what we say. Sometimes it's actually more implied. But this is where you, you build these language mo- models okay. that are using So it's literally like languages. Yeah, yeah, literally languages. In this case, yeah. this BERT, which is what we're, we're speaking to, is what uh-huh. the Google AI team built. Uh, this language model, but it's basically, you know, used to, to do that, right? And part of the challenge here, when you think about AI, which we can get into right away, is that because it's using, you know, millions and billions of data points to pull in there, if there's already implied and direct biases in that language to begin with, that is then using to inform how to provide better imp- out- output going forward, then it's really hard to undo unbuckle, it. Yeah. unbuckle those things. And that is, in essence... 
with a very complicated issue, kind of the core of the problem. Got it. So it's like fruit of the poison tree. Once you kind of start the, the first right. domino, if the first domino screwed up, then the hundred thousandth domino is going to be like not even hitting yeah. the... And of course, AI is used for a whole bunch of things, right? But in this right. case, we'll probably focus more on specifically of what it means for search and language models and, and really the work that... Um, that Timnit was was doing there at Google, right? So okay. she she was fired basically after submitting this paper for well, there's some a research deba- conference. There's some debate about that, but we'll get into that, right? And, yeah, fire, we'll get into yeah. this. She, how she was fired, right. right? But in essence, she was she's we'll no take longer. Her, we'll take her word for it. We'll take her word for it. Um, she was be, she was basically asked by Google to retract the paper or remove Google employee names. So they had issues with the paper that she has written, right? And this, she wrote this with a, with a bunch of other folks. Um, Basically, Timnit, the way that she responded, she's threatened, you know, Google that she will leave if she was not told both who reviewed it and what exactly was the issue that they had with it. That they could basically work on her last day. And Google responded with accepting her resignation and giving her the last day B now. Right. Yeah. So you can say she wasn't fired, <laughs> but it's a big difference between saying, hey, if you don't tell me these things, which I think are very fair questions. Yeah. If you're asking me to retract this paper, what of the paper do you have an issue with? And then B, like, who is actually having this problem with it? Otherwise, I don't need to be here. They're like, great, you don't need to be here. As you know, I've been using uh, Texas Hold'em as a, as a model for all life lately. And that's an example of kind of moving all in with rags and the person calling, right? Yeah, it's, it is. It's basically what it is. You're it, bluffing, and then they're like, okay, you moved all your chips in. I will call you. Let's see what you got. Right. So the issue here is not so much that Google doesn't have the ability to, to fire her, although now there's like a lawsuit, I believe, associated with this. Um, but the, the the bigger problem. So there's a couple a couple of issues here. One's let's start with the, with the the one that we've been talking about um, in the, the last few episodes, or at least you know since we started this podcast, which is her. She's an African American woman, right, in a high ranking role at Google, and her departure is really a significant uh, because it broadens those tensions about racial diversity in Silicon Valley, right? Uh, I went back and looked at the stats, and, and for Silicon Valley tech firms, African Americans account for about three percent of the workers there, right? So you already have very, very low representation. And we're not talking about this. This is an overall workforce. So it gets even worse when you go to those senior levels. And I don't, I don't have that stat here, but we've, we've shared it before, but I don't have it in front of me in terms of what that stat looks like. But it definitely does not speak well for representation of senior folks that are diverse in these companies when someone at her with such high visibility gets let go in that manner or get, or they accept her resignation in that manner without additional conversation. By right? the way, I looked at the stats specifically for Google. I know you just cited a general industry statistic for Silicon Valley, but uh, just so it, it kind of accords with what you just said, maybe a little bit higher. For 2020, uh, Google uh, black employees were 3.7%. The audience will should know because we've said it before that the national average is between thirteen and fourteen percent, so significant under index. The, the national average of uh, population. Population. Saying. I'm sorry, yeah. in the U.S. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and 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 you know we can get into some of this as well. There is a massive, massive underrepresentation of black. The most is black, followed by uh, Latino, which is about six percent relative to eighteen percent of the total population in the U.S. There's also an under index of whites. Pretty, uh, I mean, significant one relative to the general population. Not as bad as Black and Latinos. Oh, what but is it? Fifty-one percent of the staff at Google is white. In the av- in the U.S., it's something like seventy percent or whatever it is. When you maybe a little bit lower. Yeah, it's than in that. the sixties, right? So yeah. it's it's a, it's a it's an under index. But the biggest over index. It's a ten x over almost a ten x. It's actually an eight forty. I did the math. Eight forty index is Asian. Forty two percent of the population inside of Google is Asian. So anyway, that's the. Mm-hmm. demographic makeup of 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 them specifically. Yeah, so it right, but to that point, especially as a race to African Americans, it just doesn't speak well for helping 
close that gap or you maintaining the, the current gap that is there, right? Um, I think the other thing that it brings up is, is really these challenges in, in raising these type of issues, um, especially with core technology that is just so profitable for some of these organizations, right? Search is a massive, massive component of Google. I mean, it's it's been its biggest driver. The reason it is what it is, of course, it's been diversified to a bunch of other, other businesses, but their ability to, you know, to have a successful search business. And if that is in any way being put in question in terms of some of the issues that, you know, she brought up in her paper, um, that's a problem. Uh, and the fact that they acted so swiftly on, on this, I think it just, it doesn't speak well in my mind, even before we get into the issues with AI or anything, but just the way it was handled is one of those where I immediately think there could have been a different way to resolve this. I'm trying to also tease apart what the differences between a legit question, legit issue around um, how does diversity play a role in the writing of these algorithms and in these languages and all those different things. That's a real issue. It's a real discussion. And then there's an HR issue here between the way that this woman uh, you know, communicated the things that she did and the actions that her managers took. And I, I definitely think that's also a question, but I also want to like kind of separate those things yeah. because I read a lot of stuff and I've seen some of this back and forth in the corporate world. And it sounds like at some point, both of them, if they look at this thing objectively, would probably reel back, either side would reel back in some of the things that they, that they sure. did. So do we separate those or should we just talk no, I about- I think we what, should separate yeah. them because they are different things, right? So- and what I was really getting into now is really the HR portion of it, right? Okay. So how they actually okay, then let's it, tackle right? that one first. Um, because I agree with you. I think, look, I think also this is part of a broader trend um, that Google, frankly, is having to now struggle and deal with. It was trying to bring pull back in some of its employees. And in terms of how they've, the culture they've created and the level of leeway they've given employees to share their, express their opinions, to pushback against at all levels of leadership. By the way, part of the reason why it made these companies like Google, like Silicon Valley, so attractive for so many very talented, you know, young uh, um, technicians to be part of these organizations because they do get that kind of voice representation, that kind of freedom. The downside of that is it creates a dynamic where if you're running an organization and now if I put my hat out, my hat of CEO, I have this like rogue employee out there putting out a statement that maybe I didn't get really get a chance because one of the questions is like, well, did Google really get enough time to actually vet the paper sure. before it got submitted to actually cross-reference? And they have issues with some of the things that are being said, said there. So there's some process piece there you want to you know, be able to bring back. I get all that. I still think in in that conversation, at the end of the day, with someone that is such a high-ranking position, with a sensitive topic like this, that most of us, and we talked about this last week, how much distrust there is of the social platforms already, and some of the technology companies already, that someone at that high level of position that is diverse, that is pushing back against core technology and raising questions will get let out that quickly and out the door. I just think it's a mistake for Google. I think those subjects of culture that you brought up a second ago are particularly meaningful when you consider the size of some of these organizations, yeah, right? Google is 120,000. Global organizations, right? Global organization. about that sometimes. Global organization, 120,000 roughly employees that are full-time let alone advisors, consultants, vendors, whatever, but at least 120,000 people who actually work there. And what you're saying is you want to, you set the tone of this, like everybody's got their 20% time, they can work on their own projects, they can push back on, sure. on authority. And that's cool because part of the culture, but the dark side of that is kind of anarchy, right? It's like, well, I'm not going to do what you're saying. or And then the kind of structures of, of things needing to get done or whatever can kind of fall apart. So they're in that moment maybe between having a classically liberal kind of um, whatever forum to what 
can in some cases feel like, wait a minute, then it's like we can't affect any change if everybody just says no or fires back or whatever. Right. And I see or, that or because- has as, a, as a public debate on Twitter. Well, not just about it. Exactly. And that that gets into some of of my point, because I think if we're just going to tackle the HR problem first, there definitely seems like there was some bad blood before this between uh, Tim Roo and Google and maybe for a while. I actually read her blog, right? And it's, yeah, there's a Twitter piece and all that. But I mean, her blog is, you know, pretty, pretty pointed, right? Ranting against rant may be the wrong word, but I read it as a kind of riot act sort of thing. Maybe I put a little bit more. I made her words a bit more emotive in my head than maybe they were, but it was definitely, let's just say, very clear about her position against some of the things that the powers that be were doing, especially as it relates to uh, diversity and inclusion training, which I think is fascinating. We can get into that in a second. And but but you know there seems to be some bad blood that was between them, kind of like going these guys don't listen, these guys whatever. And then here comes this flashpoint, which is this paper, because the way that I think about it, having been in these situations, you do something, your management comes in and says we're not doing it, and your next shot out of the barrel is tell me X, Y, or Z, or I quit. Like th- that's really quick acceleration for there not to have been some other things maybe before that. So my sense is there was some of this yeah, I that's get, maybe go, been going on for a bit. And I, they were I like... It, yeah, there was definitely something going on there for a bit. But I also can understand her position as a researcher, as an academic, uh, to have real issue with, if you're going to censor me, I need to know what you're censoring me about, right? Think of it more from the perspective, maybe a better point of reference for us that have been in the media space would be is in dealing with folks in news, right? Like I remember when we were... Both of us were at Univision, like part of our, my team, literally, literally supporting all of the local news organization. And that was an issue that will come up every so often. It's like if you're going to censor someone that does news content or try to, you better have a good reason why that's the case. And there was always like at least you church tried to state. have church and state sort of separation of like, no, 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 this is news. And, and if you're going to come from the business side and try to tell me that I can or cannot do this, there needs to be a really good justification for why that is the case. And I think as someone that is a researcher who basically that's what she can brought in from academia – my guess is they're going to have a much more sort of draw the line of if if you have an issue with my research, right. what is wrong with the with the research? Right. Because simply tell me that I can't publish something that I factually think is correct and collaborating with right. a bunch of other folks who were to work on this. I have a much maybe, bigger and, issue and, than simply, and, and that's you a, know. Yeah, that's a fair point. I think the other thing that maybe is a play is that I'm not suggesting that researchers don't do things every day, but let's just suggest, let's just say that they work on significant projects of like real depth and thoroughness. Maybe they publish one thing a year or one thing a quarter, whereas somebody in an operational role is doing 12 tasks a day. And if you tell them no on this one, it's one of 12. In this case, maybe it's one out of one. And she's like, what the hell? So there's definitely some of that. That's, that's the pro side of the argument. The con side of the argument is I look at this and go, wait a minute. Here is if somebody who's top-notch researcher, female, woman of color, leading voice. Why do you let her get away so fast? That's the point, you, yeah. But that's what, that's what I'm saying. So could there be, this is the uh, controversial stance potentially, but could there be an HR problem that pr- that preceded this where it was like, hey, you know what? That was, this is our escape clause? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's our, it's our, it's our, it's our escape hatch. Pull the ripcord. I mean, yeah. There's there a little been, bit of that. There, you know, I, I, I cannot speak to... I obviously I didn't know anything about her, frankly, until until I I saw this 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 uh, this headline. I started looking into it, but you're I mean there may be kernels of truth in, in what you're saying sure. because of how it was handled. Either way, in my mind, it's just not a good look for Google. Not at all. Frankly, at the end of the day, yeah. Google is the one who loses out in that, in that conversation, right? Now, going back to the actual work itself, 
right? Um, now, she, uh, Geru, is, um, she's best known actually for some of the work that she did on algorithmic biases, especially as it related to facial recognition technology, right? Yeah, this I read is about what I was, what I was talking yeah. about. Is like when I first heard about it, I was like, oh, that's actually really interesting, right? So her and her partner, Joy, uh, messing up her last name, Bolamwini. I'm sorry. It's very wow. Let me, let me give it a shot. Where is it? No, that's kidding. a tough one. Yeah, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I know I apologize, Joy. I'll say Joy. I like her first name. There you go. Easy to say. Uh, that showed error rates for identifying darker skinned people were much higher than error rates for identifying lighter skinned people. Right, since the data sets that were used to train these algorithms were overwhelmingly white and male, right? So you can see this immediate sort of implication of what happens when these uh, algorithms are not set up correctly. And the data, the source data that's being used to train them is not diverse enough to be able to, uh, to, to provide better outputs. Now, the, the, the result of that work is actually some real impact, right? So in the summer or yep. over the summer, mm-hmm. uh, some of that work actually led to Amazon announcing that they were going to put a one-year uh, moratorium on allowing law enforcement to use its, to use its controversial facial recognition platform called uh, Recognition with a K, right, instead of a C. So that's a platform that was being used by, and it wasn't, wasn't, uh, my understanding is it wasn't adopted, adopted in a lot of different places, but at least in a couple of different precincts. Uh, but it's used, a t- it's a kind of technology that lets you kind of like it's like in the spy movies where they like zoom in on somebody's face and they like here's sure. the database and, and it tracks facial recognition now right why does this matter right think about that point alone and especially as it relates to what happened over the summer with George Floyd and and frankly the issues that many diverse people have had to deal with with feeling that they're going to be harassed by the police or they're going to be misidentified as being someone that's a suspect because you know every African American is like fits the same description of hey what does such look like African American mm-hmm. and like okay that's pretty much anyone mm-hmm. that's that's darker um and now you have technology that could potentially be giving you biased information and wrong information, frankly, uh, and therefore putting someone's life in jeopardy because of that, right? So that's real, some real issues there. So I thought that was pretty interesting when you looked at that. And that's actually a good example of how, in this case, biased information or lack of diverse information in sort of informing how AI gets gets built out can have some real life implications, Um and really, you know, come up with pretty bad outcomes. Yeah, part, and part I definitely talk. heard about that. I mean, she's, she's got some legit chops and she got to where she is, you know, for for obviously for a reason. Google's point of objection, though, at least to, to the extent I even understand what the hell these people are talking about, but seems to me to be that, at least what they say, which is, again, what lends this idea of maybe there's an HR issue right. because it sounds like so weak what they said the reason was for not pub- publishing it and for the consequence and for the ac- actions that followed as a consequence. They said that the paper doesn't address like all the other things that Google has done and kind of the good that's already happened in these areas of environmental impact, which was an area that she pointed out, right. um, and of whatever the other issue was. There was uh, actually a, a, a report that was put out by MIT technology that kind of gets into the different categories of right. what the the paper that she you know that she published right or that she was sharing with this with this uh conference um uh, some of the areas included are the first one was you just mentioned environmental and financial costs of processing that level of data right mm-hmm. just to be able to get the the level of, of ai information out tons of processing and there's an environmental cost associated with that um there's also the massive data and the impact that collecting racist, sexist, and abusive language had in training the data, right? A little bit of what we, we, we've been talking about. And as part of that, the lack of nuance of how language is evolving, right? Which is a really interesting one. Um, and some of the examples they talked about, even most recently with Black Lives Matters, with the Me Too movement, how some of those phrases really have evolved in terms of what they mean over the last few years versus maybe what they were five years before, right? Uh the people also got, got into issues like that. It also failed to capture 
the language and the norms of countries and people that have less access to the internet and thus a smaller linguistic footprint online. I thought that was such an interesting, like yeah, such an interesting sure. point, right? Sure. Because we're basically like we're we're the ones who are creating this language for the right. rest of the world. So it, it gives you this very homogeneous view it of what does. the world looks like based on a subset of people and because they happen to have a lot more information online. Now, if those subset of people that have to have more information online historically happen to also be a lot less diverse, not well represented. Then you have a yeah, multiplier danger, of a, danger of a problem, Robinson. Right? But I also think you can overcorrect, right? Because what chi- what is what you just described is a chilling dystopian kind of idea that because we think this word means X, whether it's right or wrong, we by extension, because we're the ones behind these big companies, are kind of in a way developing the language of the entire planet sure. by virtue of that. Yeah, yeah. That's chilling. Equally chilling to me is a group of people sitting in Silicon Valley determining that something is or isn't something morally and then building code on the basis of that understanding. Right. I think both of them to me are, are, are kind of chilling. Yeah. And I think the, which is gets into the last point that was brought up, at least the one that I wrote down is, uh, you know, because the draining data is sets are just so large, it just becomes very hard to audit them. And to check to see what are these embedded biases, right? Both to inform what you just described, which is where you go in there and say, no, no, I'm going to proactively say this is bad. This is is bad. Or the opposite, which is all this bad stuff kind of comes in and it's really hard to to be able to pull out. So those are the major issues that she's bringing in her paper. Now, to the point, how much of this, because the paper itself has not been published, to my knowledge. Um, Well, somebody did actually publish it. They leaked it or something and they put it out there. So it it has been read. I haven't seen that. It's not available to the public. I think it was leaked on some like, you know, places where only data scientists can look at it. To that point, you know, to what degree is Google already addressing many of these points? And that was their point. They're sure, like, fair. we're doing something about it. But, it just seemed like... But doing something about it and something being a problem feel like that's not a good enough reason to not highlight why something but is But this is precisely problem. my point. You're talking about a research department, which is the closest equivalent to maybe academia in the, in the business world that you can have, right? These people mm-hmm. are supposed to be unfettered, study all these things, do the whole beautiful mind, Russell Crowe thing, sit in your office and produce a paper, yada, yada, right? That's sure. supposed to be it. And here Google responds, which what decidedly feels like a kind of a marketing concern, which is... Yeah. Don't tell people these bad things. We've already done a lot of good things to fix the things that you're saying. And that, to me, flies directly into the face of what you're supposed to be doing with these researchers, which tells me that maybe there's another reason that they're doing this. Otherwise, it's like, it it just, it it sounds like, admittedly it does, a very hollow kind of reason to let this woman go or take accept her resignation. But, but don't you think that kind of happens all the time, Charlie? Like this is at a, a very large scale and very public and a big issue, right? Yeah. But this issue about, look, media companies, tech companies have always, you know, we've seen plenty of examples of that where they hire research people to do their thought leadership, to put out white papers, really to help advance the agenda forward. And this is probably not going to be the first time nor last time or where once the outcomes of they don't like, results, they, they don't like it. them. Yeah. And therefore like, mm, maybe we don't actually talk about I, that. Maybe we, yeah. maybe we pull back. And I think in this case, you have to have someone that also has a big enough personal brand that is it, it herself an established thought leader in the industry beyond Google, yeah. as big as Google is beyond Google says, wait a minute, you're not going to silence me because you didn't like the results. Like, that's just not going to happen. And, and not, I think and, that and, dynamic yes, it happens does, a lot. In most it, cases, we don't hear about it because those yeah. researchers are sort of like, you know, 
at the end of the hall in the small little closet, like, hey, go back to your side and go crank up some more numbers. And you may but be let us right worry about how we message this. You may be right. Maybe I'm just monumentally naive about this, and it all just literally comes back to the dollars tied directly to search or whatever it may be. Maybe that is the case. I just thought that when you've got you know, researchers doing artificial intelligence languages, that should be a different kind of research than maybe the one you and I did, which was, look, noble, and I'm not, sure. no disrespect against the researchers we've worked with, but it was like, you know, Latinos like salsa X percent more than this. It was like, awesome, and it can help you sell more to, to salsa, right. but at the end of the day, we really weren't building like new languages, right? So yeah. it, 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 I just thought that maybe this is like a level of research that you would kind of not let that influence from a marketing standpoint, but there are reasons for it if we take them at face value, simply say, you didn't include all the other good work that we've done, so it's kind of a one-sided research paper. We don't like that. And that, to me, defeats the whole purpose of having this kind of open place, open idea of research. Yeah, and and I, that's why I think there was something else going on. And yeah, I think she was, was a thor- something else going on. I think she was a thorn in their side. That's what I think. Probably. Uh, but, I, but I still think it's a, it's a massive problem. It's a massive problem, I think, for Google, for the industry in general. Because, look, we, we just last week, we talked about the fact that you had uh, Facebook and Twitter um, and the last Senate hearing that they had back in November – and all the issues that were being brought up around content moderation, yep. around transparency in general, it's, as the big issue that almost everyone agrees, I think everyone agrees, it's a problem. And here you have a researcher, very established, African-American woman, because it matters in this, in this context, highlighting some what sound like very legitimate issues that need to be addressed, especially as you think about AI at scale, which once again is going to permeate into everything that we do. Um, and gets kind of shown the door in a matter that even if it's technically legal the way they did it and they could say technically she resigned still leaves you with a really bad taste in your mouth and that ultimately as much as there's public pr of these companies saying no no no, we're looking out for the little guy we want to be transparent everything when it push comes to shove this just comes off feeling like the reality is no as long as it doesn't mess with our core business we're all for supporting these causes but the second that it does then we have an issue with it yeah no, I, I I do understand that. I think, you know, and I mentioned she may have been, she I believe she was a thorn in their side. I'm not suggesting that she was the um, the sort of bad actor and Google's the good actor. The, right. the case may be exactly the opposite. She's a thorn in their side and they're the ones who are actually the bad player. And that may actually be the case. But if we look at her reasons, again, going back to her blog as a source, of what she was sort of upset about, a lot of it centers around, which I want your take on, a lot of centers around... Um, this diversity kind of uh, platforms, the DNI movements, and um, and specifically the idea of some of the KPIs and mentorship KPIs that Google had actually set into effect. I didn't read that. Yeah, let's let's hear about that. Well, her her big beef on, at least as I can understand it, her big beef on the DNI stuff was twofold. One is that she felt that nothing happens from the diversity and inclusion training aspect. I agree that nothing happens. Her take seems to be that maybe there's some nefarious reason why nothing happens. My take, based on the data we did on an earlier show, is that a lot of this stuff just sucks the way that they put it together. Sure. So it doesn't really work. But she doesn't like the fact it doesn't work. And she objects to her being brought in because she's black into these other kind of myriad of like, we want a black POV projects. So there, there's like a twofold thing. Like, I don't like it because nothing happens. And because there's such big diversity push now inside of Google, I get roped in to a thousand pet projects that have to do with, you know, get, getting a diverse point of view. Right. And it's kind of a waste of my time. So that's what I read in, in her two, her two things. And the other thing about mentorship was 
that she believed that that was, at least as I read it, kind of a way to placate people with her concerns. Like, oh, we're mentoring. That's why nothing's happening. Right. Which is an interesting... It's actually really interesting, right? Because if I'm understanding what you're saying and, and trying to think of it from her perspective, you know, this could be someone that sees this, like getting pulled into a bunch of, a bunch of different projects as more of a show and tell. Like, hey, to make people feel good about, look, yeah. look, we have the senior person, look, African-American woman, look at that, look, a great role. Oh, look, right. she's, she's diverse, so we should all feel pretty good that, you know, that, that we don't have a problem, right? It, it kind of reminds me a little bit when people used to say, uh, when, after President Obama got elected, like, yeah, of course there's no racism in America. We got an African-American president. Sure. Like, sure. What, what are you talking about? Sure. Like, well, it doesn't exactly work that way, right? So I think I could see that. And I think the biggest issue, though, that I could, I could think about is that, when you look about that in the context of, you know, here you're trying to do all these things around diversity, right? You do this training, which I don't feel is effective. You 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 parade me around to these different things to show, make people feel better that, look, we have these diverse people in the organization and senior leadership roles. But when, but when it comes time to actually making a real impact in the business, the core business of what we're actually involved in or where diverse insights can help influence that, now you have a problem with me. Now you have a problem with the voice that, I, that, I'm, that I'm bringing up. Like the thing that you and I talk about all the time Literally, the essence of what black, brown is all about is that when you take, you know, if you were to actually look at diversity beyond HR, beyond marketing, and put it into driving the insights that actually help shape the products and services, that's where you make real impact. And frankly, That's exactly what she's trying to do. That's what she's trying to do. And that's yeah. what she's getting called out. She's yeah. getting pulled into the HR category. Yeah. She's getting pulled into the marketing side to some extent as well, right? Internal marketing at least. But when it comes to actually influencing the products and services of what the business actually is, that's why all of a sudden go like, oh, I don't know if then we really want to have you here because, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if we, if we agree with that. Or you're not saying enough of the nice things that we're actually doing to help fix this problem. What do you think is, so what do you think is going on here? You think Google is just afraid of the impact that some of these things can have to their money-making machine? I mean, I think there is some of that. I also think there's a PR problem they're trying to deal with. I think they're concerned with Congress, uh, who already has a big uh, limelight on all of these guys. Oh, yeah. And well, they're, that they're, they're being sued by the government and right now. And worry that they're going to get even more pressure. So I think there's definitely that. There's I agree external with pressure that they're very concerned about. And frankly, that's probably more concerning to them than, ever, than the actual possible bad PR that will happen with her leaving. And you're right. I think that the, the whole thing about her being a little bit of a thorn in her side, like if there's someone that is like, she's not going to get bullied. She's not going to, you can't just, tell her, just go to your corner and just mind your business. She's, she has a big enough brand and, and is a, you know, has the, the, the experience and really the reputation of someone that is a thought leader. I thought it was, it's, it's probably a case where if they don't find a way to work more with her, it's going to be probably a constant battle. So I think her big mistake, obviously, was moving all in with rags, right? Back to the poker term. Because the reality of it is, is if she wouldn't have offered her resignation, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. Now, the reality of it is, is that they still may be internally trying to stifle her, right? I read yeah. some of the conversations on, on uh, I forget where it was, but people who worked there before had said like, yeah, technically the process is X, but I worked there for 10 years and we always did it this way. Yeah. Nothing ever happened. Yeah, now they're saying, well. now they're saying, Hey, you didn't follow the exact right. process. And it's true. She didn't. Right. So that they can have right. her on that technicality, but it, but it, it just, but who comes out better on the other end? I still think she comes out better on the other, on the other oh, end. Oh, without a shadow of I mean, a she doubt. Had a, every article. She had a it, big star before and now is massive. Every article. Yeah. She's now, you know, she's at a different level, right? I mean, she's, uh, and I think she, you know, for that reason and others, she could be very attractive to a whole host of other people. I don't think we have anything to worry about right. her future prospects. Um, but 
the part that's just frustrating me is I don't know what else was going on here because, right. and it could have been as simple as just a bad dynamic between her and her boss. I mean, like those things happen too, those things right? Happen as well. um, because but, but, but you it was a very cool letter from her boss who I also read. It was very cool. It was like cool as in temperature, not as in hip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like, you know, we really thank her for all the great work she's done, but she's decided to move on. So, right. you know, what can I do? <laughs> you know what I mean, it was just so. It just handles so poorly. Look, I could only, look, if, 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 you, if you flash forward, the next Senate hearing, this is going to come up for Google when, when, when they're being interviewed, right? When they're talking to them and they're saying, well, why did you let this thought leader- She may be actually called to bring, testify. Yeah. And I think that's a massive problem for Google. So frankly, I think it's a problem for Google. And it's, it, look, from what, it, from what it sounds like and the little that I understand, and I'll be the first to admit it, uh, it seems like real issues that do need to be looked at and not swept under the rug. So to I think to Google, they need to own up to it and be a lot more aggressive about trying to address these points and frankly, not push out people that bring out these issues that call the baby ugly. I think embrace them and make them part of the solution. Mm, amen to that. I have a, just one last thought on this before we move on to courage uh, and cringe, courage or cringe. Um, and that is what these algorithms that are being written about um, and, and you know written for the, these technologies and how they should be shaped. Because I think... The idea of us unintentionally impacting the way the entire world communicates, the value of certain terms, all those things, again, that's scary to me. And the other one is scary is like this idea of like three or four people going, oh, this is bad or this is good. The solves for that, and I have no idea what I'm talking about, but let me just explain what I, you know, if I was leading a group of algorithm writers. Love it. Because <laughs> I, I think the idea would be how do we help these folks who are overwhelmingly not a diverse group of people. I don't mean that they're, they don't have diverse people in the groups, but the group of people doing this is not itself diverse, right? In terms of experience, mostly Silicon Valley, huge over-index of Asian, uh, Asian Americans like and, and white, huge. That's like the two biggest camps. I think the thing that I would impress upon this group of people would be you've got to be sensitive to a huge swath of people who view the world differently than you do. As a result of that, it's not cover uh, build into the algorithm because it's got a left bias. Now build in a, a right bias or build in an equal right thing. I don't think that's the answer, but I think it'd be issuing larger types of goals like, for instance, the idea of algorithms that help explore and support nuance, right? As an example, nuance as a theme or compelling kind of back to our to the sources, right? Uh, um, algorithms that that support and drive the adoption of source data, right? Yeah. Um, or lastly, that support exchanging, like discourse, not about like dropping another point of view there because that doesn't, that actually, I read some studies that it does the opposite. If you put conservative stuff in front of liberals, it makes them more liberal. If you put liberal stuff in front of conservatives, it makes them more conservative. So it wouldn't be about like introducing that stuff, but like creating the premium on discourse. So like I would issue those kinds of things as a guide forward. Does that sound like that's right or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the the issue, and this is part of the problem is, is the, I think nuance is frankly the hardest part to try to solve for at scale. Um, I think part of that comes from looking at what are the data sources that they're pulling in um, to really be able to inform these, you know, these algorithms and, and AI as to how to interpret information um, that it, you're right. I think that makes sense. The how you go about doing that, yeah, no idea. Um, my bigger concern here is just simply 
what feels like a lack of publicly admitting that we have an issue that is already a problem that's only going to get worse unless we get really aggressive trying to solve for it. And and that didn't that didn't come across clearly clearly in this in this example, right? And I think if anything, it looks like the opposite, which is no, 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 let's not put too much light on this on this issue because we're doing a bunch of cool stuff already to try to solve for this problem. So that's why let's let's pull this back. And it just doesn't give people confidence. It doesn't give the average consumer uh, confidence that these companies are really doing everything they can to really look out for the the end consumer. Don't you think it's worrying? Last last thought. Don't you think for me anyway? That it's worrying that no matter what we discover about Google, it doesn't seem to impact any of the utilization. Like, will you and I stop using Google search right now? Will we stop using Gmail? Will we not, uh, whatever, any other number of products that they have as a result of something like this? How embedded are these guys in in the things that we do? I mean, I could say, yeah, you could could say maybe it doesn't have an impact. At the same time, it's like, you know, the the thing I, I would always, and it's for a different reason, but... The thing that I always use as a point of, uh, as a way to gauge people's age is when I, when I say that when I started my career, my biggest client was Netscape. And when I get that, like, kind of, like, look like, what are you talking about? Or I get the, oh, yeah, Netscape. Immediately, I kind of could put someone in what age category they actually fall into. Sure. Right? And, I sold Netscape and when I was those of you that, that are a little younger and don't know what Netscape is, Netscape was at one point one of the most dominant search uh, platforms, right, um, before Google. And... So this stuff does happen. Now, they were sort of taken out of business for, for different reasons. So well, AOL bought them. That was the first problem. Yeah, that was the first, first problem. But the point is, like, these th- things do evolve. So as big, as dominant as Google is and everything that they do, um, you know, you always got to watch out for, the, you know, whoever's the next one. And look, part of what made Google really successful was the fact that they were so hyper-focused on search when they first started. As a matter of fact, they got rid of, they were the first that really made that transition. Maybe the second, I think. It was... I don't know if it was Ask Jeeves or who the other one, but I went from portal to search. Portal meaning like there's a bunch of stuff that is almost like a We're directory. Organized for We're you. Gonna, it's a bunch yeah. of stuff that you come in and look at. Da, da, da. Google was like literally just a Google bar. That's it. Yeah. What are you looking for? Mm-hmm. And we're going to get really good at indexing information, really good at searching, understanding natural language, which is where all this kind of leads to. So if if they start to fall behind and uh, literally get to a point where they're being more protective of their business than trying to be more progressive and ag- aggressive about actually addressing some of these nuanced issues you're bringing up, you know, bringing up, who's the next startup that's out there saying, no, 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 we're going to focus 100% on nuance. That's all we're going to worry about. We're not going to try to index the entire world. We're going to start first like really getting really good at nuance because once we know that, then we could plug into other data sources to expand it yeah. out and but it's another I mean, my, it, it's you know? a, it's another podcast but then Google just buys them. I mean my point is my point is that I don't know with a company this size with this much power and reach without a substantial breakup or whatever of the company itself you ever get to a point where there's enough impact that a consumer can make to actually make these guys change their mind. Well and I think but that's the concern right for them they have to be very worried about the fact that look Republicans and Democrats don't agree on much. What they do agree on is social platforms Tech companies, there's a problem. Yep. There's a problem with transparency. There's a problem with content moderation, either too much or not enough. But there is a problem. There's a problem with potential monopolies here that we're talking about. And they're coming after them. So this is just one more reason for that you're giving literally more ammo to, Agreed. to I think both there's... sides of to both both parties. And I think that has to be a really big concern for Google. Agreed. And I think I've... that will make a difference. I think there'll definitely be news on that front in 2021. That's my prognostication here in uh, the beginnings of December 2020. Okay, let's uh shake that off. Shake that off. Shake off Google and we'll move into uh courage or cringe, very colorful assortment of things. Um 
this week, Jesus, we start with Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey, uh, a ride, a ride, a ride. Uh, he, Which I don't even know if that's actually how I pronounce his name, by the way. I certainly don't know how to write it, but you, I think it's McConaughey. I, I can see here right? that you wrote it two different ways, and the first of one course. was wrong. They're uh, both wrong. No, the second <laughs> so, one is correct. So I keep myself on my toes. <laughs> um, but Matthew McConaughey was in on the news uh, recently. Now, um, he was uh, he basically criticized some of his colleagues in Hollywood for having a condescending an arrogant attitude towards President Trump's voters um, in an interview that he did on Russell Brand's uh, podcast, right? Um, he also criticized uh, the left-leaning celebrities for sharing a get-out-the-vote message ahead of the 2020 presidential election, but tacking on a partisan anti-Trump message with it, right? So to quote him, he said, look, at the very end of the get-out-the-vote uh, get PSA, they say, so we don't let those criminal bastards get back in office, I'm like, no, don't say that part. You lost 50% of your audience. That's what McConaughey said. And he continued. And that's part of why so much of the nation of, of that 50% looks at us in Hollywood like, oh, yeah, another celebrity over there, the West Coasters, the elites in the Northeast. Um, and then he described Democrats and Republicans as two vehicles on either side of the political aisle that are so far apart that their effing tires uh, aren't even on the pavement anymore. Mm. So his whole point, really, at the end of this whole thing, and, and I quote, he said, look, let's get aggressive, aggressively centric. Uh, I dare you, right? So his thought is, mm. is this thing is so far apart. He also made some comments, which I, I definitely want to talk to you about, about uh, some of the misinformation and so many people that are, that are especially on the on the right side of the equation, being in denial of, of what, of the literally the results of the presidential election. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I didn't, I didn't bring that into into my notes here, but um, sure. those were the, the essence of his of his of his comments. And of course, the reason why it comes up is is the fact that this is someone that has been you know celebrity for a very long time, very much part of the Hollywood to some extent. I mean, he is a Hollywood elite, uh, but he also has been one that has sort of found a way to stay out of that of those same circles. He's from Austin. And, you know, I don't know how, to what degree he even lived in the West Coast or when he when he did. But he's one that has been, while a very popular, famous sure. uh, star, won an Oscar, has, you know, r- yep. risen to the highest level of uh, Hollywood um, stardom at the same time, has, I think, has always had sort of a very different point of he view does. And he's got sort compared of a, to, the rest, to the rest of the group. He's that got, has given him some, some leeway in terms of how he talks about some of these things. He's got, in, in a sim, he's actually similar to me in the same category, at least, as somebody like a Keanu Reeves, who is like, been in Hollywood for 30 example. years, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but kind of in a way sort of shuns the limelight. He maybe sure. does the unorthodox, doesn't go to all the junkets, doesn't do the step and repeats and all that kind of stuff. So he's got a little bit of that vibe. He's also be kind, become kind of a bit of, um, let's call it flyover country or main street Sherpa in a way. Um, he it, maybe he's like you know Clint Eastwood after Clint Eastwood goes like he's the, sort of the new Clint Eastwood in a, in a way I don't know like that's I'm just thinking of the things that I kind of identify him with because he's got this more he was a rom com guy like this guy was a lead in a, like a oh, yeah. hundred rom coms and you know just he had and a now strong he, streak for a while <laughs> yeah and now he's this kind of like grizzled you know sort of prairie cowboy he's also has some, like really good. Big big roles, right? Um, the Dallas Country, uh, what's it called? Dallas Buying Club or Dallas? Uh, Dallas Buy- yeah, Buyers Club or something. Dallas Buyers yeah, Club. Yeah, That's yeah. the one he, he won the, his Oscar for, right? That's right. Yeah, and he looking. He's a good. He's a good actor. My point is that he's he's evolved, right? So right. he, you know, people may think of him and see the rom com guy or more the sort of latest incarnation. Um, but it's definitely been an evolution. Do you want me? To, do you want me to go first? Yeah, yeah. Go okay. first. Okay. So look, for me, it's a courage. Um, and I think principally because, and this is a theme, you know, he's, he's dissenting, right? He's a minority opinion, 
within the context of Hollywood. And he's taking a risk by saying, by basically calling people out in that same um, organization or group, the, this, that being Hollywood, with a point of view that is not the norm, right? Or not the acceptable kind of thing. So I, I definitely believe that it falls into the courage category. I'd like to talk a little bit about the stuff that you mentioned in terms of his individual quotes. His idea of kind of radical centrism, which is also in that article, like he wants you to be, he dares us to be radically centrist. I'd have to ask him on what that actually means before I tell you I can agree with what that, what that means right. because, you know, the, you have to take stands, right? Radical centrism can mean a lot of things. If it means dialogue, if it means nuance, if it means debate, great. If it means, like, everybody gets a little bit of what they want, it's like, I don't know. Some things work that way. Other things don't work that way, sure. right? Slavery didn't work that Well, won't we let you have slaves on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday? Like, no. <laughs> like, no days, right? Right, right? So some things you need to take stances on. Um, but so I don't know if I agree with him in any of this, but I do think that on the, just the headline is it's definitely courageous what he did and how he stood out, um, certainly more than, than cringeworthy. And that's my take. Although I, I'd love to discuss the other quotes that he made. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, look, I think his, his call out of, of, um, some of his Hollywood colleagues and saying how he thinks it has, uh, and it's just bad the fact that they sort of do look at this group of, of Trump supporters as being condescending and it's an er- er- there's both a condescending and arrogant attitude towards many Trump supporters. I, I get that. I, I agree with that. As a matter of fact, one of the things that you and I have talked about quite a bit in this podcast is the fact that you can't look at the entire group that supported President Trump over the last two elections and then try to oversimplify them into one bucket as being, as, oh, they're all racist or they're all this and they're all that. And I think anytime you do that is a mistake. And I can definitely see how some of the comments um, and more, and I think in general, just the, the broad sort of support from a lot of these folks can't come off that way. Um, at the same time, I, I have less of an issue uh, with celebrities and frankly, anyone expressing their personal opinion for what they support and why they support it. I mean, the reality is, you know, President Trump has, you know, he has this great ability to spark passion both for and against him. There's a lot of folks that are very much against him and what he represents, right? And being able to share that. 80 million. Yeah. At least. So, but 75 million for him. Right. Exactly, right? So I think being a celebrity doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have a voice, you can't have your own opinion about it. Um, I understand his point about let's get out and vote um, would be better if it would it didn't come with a sort of uh, with a partisan you know point of view. At the same time, when I think about do you remember like the old um, rock the vote campaigns that they had sure. with MTV, MTV and all that? Yeah. I don't remember the stats now, but I don't think they were that effective. I think it becomes a thing where. Where it's interesting, where you're like, oh, just just go out and it was vote. A That's the right thing. To, it was a platform and to get political spending. And I would even I say mean, that what was, cynical view. What was interesting, um, and I remember, I forgot where I was reading this, but it was earlier, you know, before the election happened, that there's sort of these two themes that have been rising, and how each of them had a very uh, partisan, sort of implied perspective. They'll go out and vote. They literally go out and vote. Cause I saw a lot of go out and vote. Almost in every single scenario, it was very much Let's tied to, to the liberal side. So sure. even that statement of yeah. the get out and vote, I saw plenty of get out and vote, go vote, da, 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 that, whether you said it or not, had a very anti-Trump point of view. And then the American flag, which is the other one, 
is like, oh, I'm proud to be American, therefore I'm more Republican than mm-hmm. not, right? Mm-hmm. So these things, in my mind, still kind of happen, even in cases where you you weren't having that partisan point of view. Is the reality is you have also two parties that, frankly, leading up to the election, one was very concerned with trying to find a ways to limit the number of people that could vote and when and how they can vote. And another one that was trying to do everything they can to try to get more people to be able to vote in whatever way they could. So you, that's to me is part, is part of the challenge with, with, with this argument that he's making here is that you have already a, a movement of people that really were trying to get more people voting. And by doing that, it also meant more people that were going to be more against uh, President Trump. So what's your, what's your headline for Matthew McConaughey before I give you my comments? Yeah, once again, a tough one for me because I don't, I don't put it as cringe because I don't, um, I don't think there's anything that he said that I'm like violently against, right? Or that <laughs> that I like really disagree. I the th- the reason why I, I put him at courage, fifty one to forty nine, is that the starting point of the of the conversation, which is anytime you are having this uh, sort of can- condescending or arrogant point of view against President Trump's supporters, that's a problem. And whether it's a Hollywood elite, whether it's other politicians, no matter who it is, I think it's a mistake to, to do that. I think it, it, it doesn't speak to the complexity of this group and the fact that that group, for a number of reasons, does not connect, did not resonate with the Democratic Party. And there's some real issues that need to be solved. So for that reason alone, I give it the fir- courage on a 51 to 49. But I have a little bit more issue with some of his other, other, other points that he's, that he's bringing up. Cool. Okay, so we're, we're batting a thousand. The only note I would add to that on your point about one side uh, advancing the idea of voting and one side advancing the kind of American flag as the, the sort of juxtaposition. Obviously, the truth is, and what our goal should be, is that both sides are clearly supporting both of those things. And I believe that the vast majority of both groups in those parties do support those things. But... We live in a world where just the over-indexed is, is used for social and pushing messages out and moderation and all these different things. So that the net effect is one that you feel that if you're on the progressive side of the equation, you care more about the idea of voting in this particular case of the election. And if you're on the conservative side, you care more about advancing the notions of patriotism, right? The reality of it is, is they should be both. And I feel that that's an invitation, hopefully, for both sides of the political spectrum to raise their under index, right? So the conservative side of the equation should raise their, we can chew and walk and chew gum at the same time, raise your level of index on making voting accessible to everyone who wants to vote and who's legally able to vote. And then on the progressive side of the equation, increase your index on patriotism and support for the country that you live in, right? Or at least frame the issues and goals that you're pursuing as because you want to create a more perfect union, which is in our constitution, right? right. So I think it's an, hopefully that can be an invitation because I'd like to see where it's not unusual for somebody who's progressive to be patriotic. And I think we've kind of in a way, at least in the popular media, come to that moment. It's like, if I see you waving an American flag, oh, I guess you voted for whoever your Republican congressman. Like, it shouldn't be that way. It should not be that way. It should way. not be that way. I also think, though, that it gets framed that, that way in the sense that the second anyone has a point of view of which questions anything that is happening uh, in the country, it becomes this issue where, like, oh, then you're not American enough or you don't care enough for the country. Well, wait a minute. Having an issue with... How things are done, ways to make the country better doesn't make me not being American. Doesn't make me 100%. care about the country less. But yeah, it also gets framed that way, which is which is too bad. And that's the other, I guess I would add to that is that I would hope 
that we will get to that point. But this issue is, it's really interesting for me in that, in that standpoint, how the, the whole issue around voting and supporting vote has become such a political thing and how much really it's undermined confidence by the general public in terms of even having fair elections. For sure, which is a disaster for everybody. Yeah, yeah this is actually a good segue to our next Courage and cr- or, or Cringe about the, the, the sort of starting point for these discussions because I feel in the case that we're about to look at, you know, we started off on the wrong foot potentially with, with this particular issue. But why don't, we, why don't we talk about the San Diego uh, school district and what they were up to this week? Yeah, so San Diego School District um, has basically um, made a couple, of, a number of anti-discrimination efforts, right? The, the latest one is that, at least what they consider to be anti-discrimination efforts, right? Um, and of course, it'll be controversial. Uh, the, the latest one is that oh, good. they held professional development training for teachers, which covered uh, the topic of white fragility, right? And there were some pretty controversial sections within this training, which included, and I'm going to go through these, one is a land acknowledgement that started at the beginning of the presentation that basically asked those that are in attendance to accept that the U.S. was established on stolen Native American land. There was also, you know, slides that cover white privilege and culture, which basically will highlight, which highlights the direct and indirect benefit of being white in this country. And maybe the most controversial was that according to the New York Post, and I have to say that because they actually included both the presentation, but then how they frame it, it's not clear to me that it's the same thing. Uh, according to New York Post, the trainers reportedly told the group that, and I, and I quote, you are racist and, second, upholding race ideas, structures, and policies. Now, that's what the headline said on the New York Post. Now, in the actual slides that they shared and included in the deck, what it, what it, what it said is basically was a slide that said the statement, you are racist. And then there was a two-part question that they were asked of the group to actually in, engage with. One would be, how does it make you feel to see, to see the statement, you are racist? And the second is, what would you want to say to someone that tells you this? And that was both for the statement, you are racist, and then the second one being upholding racist ideas, structures, and policies. Um, that was the first one. And why don't I pause there before we get into the second piece? What was your thoughts when you saw that, um, their, 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 their training? So, well, when I saw the story, I, the, the very first thing that I had to do was kind of separate a couple of things. One of them is the, the idea of the training itself existing, which we've covered before on this episode and to which I can, with fairly good scientific evidence, show that it probably, if it's anything like the ones before it, is not going to yield the intended results. That was one thing. The second thing is the actions that the school district actually took related in somewhat to this or, or related in some sense to this training. And that was the their vote to eliminate what they call, quote, non-academic factors like late work and classroom behavior in a student's grade. Yeah, that was like, I actually hadn't gone into it, but yeah, that's, that is the second issue, okay. right, that they had, yeah. right? So yeah, let me just cover that yeah, really yeah, yeah. quick, Sorry. right? So it's okay. Uh, so earlier in the year, uh, by the way, this is all in part of this anti-discrimination efforts, right? So the district underwent basically a major overhaul of its grading system. Um, and it was, to your point, as a way to combat racial discrimination, right? So what they did is they looked at some data and they revealed that there were some significant disparities between the percentage of white and minority students who had received failing grades in the first semester of the previous year, right? Uh, so while white students made up uh, 7% of all D and F grades, black students accounted for about 20%. And Hispanic students receive about 23% uh, is what the paper reported. Now, what I don't have here is what is the representation of students, right? And in well, those, in yeah, those classes. Okay. So mm-hmm. I, I actually don't know whether that's over-indexed, under-indexed, what it may be. Right. 
based on the action they took, I'm assuming it was over-indexing for Latino and African-American students, the fact that they decided that based on that data, they needed to do something that, you know, do something different. Well, the Latino I'm one would probably be an over-index. I don't know if the black one would be just based on the national um, population averages. But right, national, but, but, I, but it being that it's San Diego, San Diego, you know, yeah. I, I would think it would be a lot more Latinos, but I don't well, that's know. What I, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. I think that the over-index would exist for the Latinos. I don't know that there would be an over-index. I think that it could just be a share of as yeah. opposed to an over-index. I don't so, know. So I don't know, right? Um so in an effort to prevent discrimination, what the school board voted, which is what you were getting into, mm-hmm. was they voted to eliminate non-academic factors like late work and classroom behavior in a student's grade. And, and basically their, their justification was is because they felt that those two elements, how kids behaved in class and whether or not they, pro- they provided late work, uh, those more diverse students were more impacted by that. Um, and therefore, and maybe there was discrimination that could tie into that in any way whatsoever. So they removed that to try to find a way to better balance out how kids were being graded. Um, and the, and, and what the, I think the hope that the results will be is that you will have less diverse students that will fall into those failing grades. Sure. I think th- this is a really fascinating. Those are two very different issues. They're, they're That's very why different. I kind of paused they're, in the first one, but, they're very but let's different. talk about both. They're, yeah. they're, so they're very, very different. The idea of them having the training Right. To me is, who cares? It seems that it was not so much from what the Post said. And there was another article that I read, I think it was USA Today. One of the, it wasn't just the Post that I read. But um, um, the idea of them having a training, no, no matter, it doesn't matter to me. Seems it was voluntary. Seems it was public. Like, sure. who cares? They did it. My issue is, if it's like 80% of these programs, it actually doesn't work. So that's, but it doesn't matter because it doesn't impact my overall courage or cringe. Okay. What does is issue number two. And yeah. that's why this for me gets a cringe and okay. capital all bold letters. But I think it's really interesting the reasons why, because for me, it's rooted in exactly that statement that you just read. And at first it's me completely disagreeing with the premise, this idea that there are n- not the premise of the data. I understand the data, sure. but it's the fact that, that their solution is based on them teasing out non-academic factors and what it means to actually have an academic factor. Because when I look at school, to me, school is about preparing people to live in the world. Yes, it's about geometry and it's about life sciences and it's about math and English and all that stuff. Yeah, all good. Very true. It's about the subject matter. But what you're actually trying to do is you're trying to form citizens in that process. And when you look at what they consider non-academic factors, it's, well, not turning your stuff in on time or behaving poorly in class. And I think to myself, if we're preparing these young people for the world, you're basically setting them up in a, in a scenario where they go into the work into a work scenario as an example. You've got a deliverable due on Thursday. You don't turn it in, but you've never learned that that's actually like not okay. How are we setting these kids up, right? Or the other example, like bad behavior doesn't impact my grade. Well, why would I assume that bad behavior would impact my ability to retain a job or get promoted when we know that it would? Mm -hmm. So I just think it really sells the kids short and it's a really terrible way to do it. I get that there's reasons why they wanted to take action and I agree with that, but that requires a lot more study as to what's causing these things. This solution, <clears throat> not even close to getting at the, at, to me, to my mind, it makes things worse. And it mostly for the young, diverse kids. That's how I, that's how I look at it. Um, okay. I, you know, is this one, and I, I, I looked at both articles, um, but maybe spent a little more time in New York Post. And I thought New York Post did a terrible job of framing this, this issue with very, um, 
what language is that? Just basically like pull that all your sort of strings to get you fired up about it, right? Mm-hmm. Like teachers being told they're racist, teachers being told that they promote racist ideas. Well, just from the own deck that they actually shared, it didn't seem to be the case. It mm-hmm. seemed more of a prompt to a conversation for, for them to have. So starting with that. Uh, and, but, I, but, but I'm actually with you as it relates to the, the training itself. Look, I, I don't know the training, whether or not how effective it actually is. The content of the training, frankly, yeah, maybe a little bit controversial, but some stuff was like, well, okay. Like the, even the first piece that was brought up uh, about land acknowledgement, asking people to accept that the U.S. was established on stolen Native American land. Yeah, it was. Like, I, I don't know what to respond to that other than like, yeah, if you if you looked at, you know, how this country was set up, it, it was it was the case. And that's, and kind of this actually, by the way, I was saying, I'll go a little bit tangent and come back to it. It speaks to me very differently because- over the last few weeks uh, with my daughter, who's in third grade, we've she's starting to now get into history and some of the questions that she's bringing up to me that I'm having a little bit of a harder time of explaining as to the why, right? So they, um, as it was, uh, they, they started to study um, Christopher Columbus, mm-hmm. right, in October, mm-hmm. and all the, in the, all the history that is there. They started mm-hmm. to get into pilgrims. And when we started talking about Christopher Columbus and the Spanish specifically going into Latin America and starting with, with, with Mexico— she started asking me a bunch of questions. Well, what, what happened to all the native people that live there? Mm-hmm. Right. And why were they there? Were they there? And we started getting into the issue of like people being like their, their land being stolen, their gold being taken away, people dying and everything that happened from that. It's really hard to justify. And at the end, I have to come back and say, yeah, but you know, frankly, this is a very complicated history, but part of who you are is a result of these mix of races that actually, you know, came to be and the sure. culture that came out of that. So sure. while the history of it and how it started, <laughs> It's pretty rough. At the same time, it's part of just who you are, and and it's, but but to but to try to pretend like that didn't happen, sure, like it's just but history, that doesn't work. But history is dicey though across the board, right? Because I think for, that there sure. the pendulum can swing in all directions to the point where we also paper over the fact that the Native American tribes were constantly battling one another. For sure. And were constantly taking land from each other. And we or talked look about at, that. Or yeah. look at the Aztecs and the Mayans, right? It's like, yeah, advanced civilization, whatever, well, lots we, of agrarian. They also had human sacrifice. So we can't, like, you can swing the pendulum in either for, direction. For sure. And that's, that, as a matter of fact, part of what I talked about, part of the reason why the Aztecs lost is because they had been basically fighting with all the other tribes all around them and so they didn't have a lot of friends in that area because they kept on taking yeah, people. Nobody had their people, back. No one had their back, right? Because they they were the biggest one in the in the in the on the block, and that was part of the reason how they were defeated. Now, but once again, to paper over that, to pretend like that stuff didn't happen, I think it's a problem. So when I see this, it's like, how successful is it? I don't know. How much it actually changed people's perspective? No idea. Uh, but I had less of an issue with the with the training. So the whole first section about the training, I thought like, well, I don't know if that's the best way to, to go about it, but I actually don't have a lot of issues with the actual content of the training itself. This whole issue with the, with the second one, that was, actually was, was a lot more interesting to me because my initial response in reading this was an immediate like massive mistake. Why would you do this? You're only lowering the, lowering the bar across the board. It makes no sense to me. And then I started to think about the current context of what we're going, what's going on right now with many of these kids having to, uh, do schooling from home, remote mm-hmm, learning. Mm-hmm. And the difference that it makes for those kids that have access to technology and the space to be able to learn, to be able to study, to do the work versus those kids that don't. And the impact that it has on those non-academic issues have in the actual real life of so those kids actually learning, studying and, and doing the work. And I just have a hard time 
not feeling some level of empathy for kids that are growing up in those scenarios. Frankly, how I grew up in cases where like I didn't have my own bedroom to like I was in college. Like all of my work, I did it in front of, with everyone else running around in a house that had two families living in it. And the, just the ability to, to find a quiet place to concentrate and do work makes a pretty big difference. So to what degree, and this is a problem with seeing uh, data in this manner, to what degree are other factors actually contributing to these kids being late? But why To would, these kids mm-hmm. not like not doing their, their, sure. their work on time. Sure. That can be actually controlled and managed. Because in some extent, maybe I'm giving them way too much benefit of the doubt in terms of what they're trying to solve for. But those issues do impact and, and make a difference in terms of the grades that these kids get. That but ultimately, you know, that yeah. ultimately matter. You're making kind of a COVID case, though. No, uh, well, I'm, I think it's like COVID and most COVID things. COVID made things worse. Problems that already were there. Sure, sure. Kids that didn't have access to technology, that don't have yeah. enough a space, that don't have, that have parents that are working the entire, entire time, yep. have very different support structure and systems at home to mm-hmm. be able to do the work on time and get the same level of grades out of kids that that has all that at home. Mm-hmm. It, they just do now. When everything happens at home it just becomes magnified. So I'm simply just using the COVID environment to highlight the discrepancies that are already there, the disparities that are already there, and that create these issues that are a contributing factor. Now, I don't necessarily think this is the right way to answer it, right? But I have a much less violent response to this to this being looked at as a possible solve. How do you try to separate the non-academic factors that do impact the academic outcome of the kids that are going to school? So where do you net out then? Um, I'm in a, uh, once on. again, 5149 on, on cringe, 5149 on cringe. I think we're going to have to issue a new I'm rule that you can't have, you can't give percentages. I think that's, we're going to issue a new rule. Because but. I do think this is a, a much bigger issue that it is, it is very, it is. it's a very simplified solution that they gave that ultimately is a worse outcome for the kids. It's I agree bl- with that. It's a blunt tool. Having said that, I do think that I, I'm not in the same page with you as it relates to simply mm-hmm. treat them all like they all had the exact same access to resources, to exact access to support. Sure, but that's not what I'm saying. And saying that, yeah, but completely taking away non-academic factors as they, as they somehow don't play a, a major role into the academic outcome of these kids. I, I do. I'm just, my issue is with the definition of terms and the, the premise of the argument that turning in stuff late and classroom behavior are non-academic factors. I think that is a mistake. I think that's like using a hammer to open a door. It'll open it. You'll have to get a new doorknob and replace the door, but you'll get into the space. And this to me falls into the category of and I'll combine some terminology, but the dictatorship of kind of low expectations is what it really is because the person who we're hurting is like, I wouldn't want my kids to be told, oh, you can just turn your stuff in late or whatever if they didn't have. And we've had situations like that, right? I mean, we, not with my youngest uh, sons, but earlier in my in my marriage, right? We were living in an apartment, you know, didn't have the the, the, the same kind of resources that we have now. And I just look at things like late work and classroom behavior being removed from the calculus of what determines whether or not you're being successful as a student as a major mistake that ultimately just doesn't set up these kids to succeed in the future. That doesn't mean that we don't look at all the reasons why these things are happening and come up with other solutions. I just think this is kind of rulemaking to make people feel good. And I think it hurts the kids. And that's why it's a cringe for me. I think the late work and the classroom behavior... Um, are are the symptoms, not the disease. I think the symptoms, uh, those are symptoms. I think the disease is what are what are those non-academic factors that are contributing to that kid being late, to that country having having bad behavior. Sure. And I think those do need to be looked at 
So to your point, what they, you know, the, part of the question becomes for the schools, what can they actually control and have an impact on to begin sure. with? But I, I do like the idea. The reason why I'm so split on it is because I do think that does play a factor. And I think if anything, we're living in a moment where it's going to be a massive problem for a lot of these kids that were already having issues, that were already were a step behind and having the right support structure at home to be able to be successful while going to school. And now while doing everything from home is going to be even harder. I mean, the, the, the stories that I've heard from parents, especially with young kids that are really struggling with their kids uh, in terms of their, their performance. Sure. It's really tough. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky in the fact that my daughter has done, you know, significantly well and, and is very well adjusted and she likes it. But that's it's not know, the case for everybody. That's not the case for everybody. So that's, that's what I worry about when I, when I see this. Okay. Well, it seems like we're batting a thousand. So barely, far, barely, barely barely, thousand. well, hanging on go, because you keep, like go, flip coins you keep going 51, 49, yes. but, um, but either way, the outcome is the same. All right. So our last one, Facebook to kind of round out our social media critique, uh, <laughs> right. what did, what did they do? So Facebook, uh, Facebook will now put a higher priority in detecting and deleting racial slurs and hate speech against black people, Muslims, Jews, and the LGBTQ community, uh, uh, and people of, of more than one race, then on statements such as "why people are stupid" and "men are pigs." So right? let, let's pause on that for a second, just mm-hmm. to make sure. So they're basically prioritizing mm-hmm. statements that are against uh, black people, Muslims, Jews, etc., certain folks, but not prioritizing effectively. Um, deprioritizing. Deprioritizing. Sorry. Sure. Uh, effectively deprioritizing white people and anything that uh, that is insulting around uh, being a man. Correct. Okay. And it's a, it's a change in their stance because that's the way they were doing it before, right? So before all of these were basically considered to be one and the same, right? So their Facebook policy uh, basically treated um, both um, anti-Semitic comments and things like against men and white people in the, in the same manner here as all being the same, right? Um, so the company said basically last week uh, that it automated moderation systems are being retrained mm-hmm. to focus on hate speech that is targeting historically marginalized and oppressed groups, which can be the most harmful. Now, and I quote, they said, we have focused our technology on finding the hate speech that users and experts tell us is the most serious. Right. Um, now, there was this is, comes from a bunch of different things that happened. Right. Now, there was an audit that was released in July. That was done by the internal by internal civil rights. Um, that basically uh, faulted Facebook for prioritizing free expression over non discrimination. Right. So the audit released in July as civil rights group led a massive boycott of Facebook. And remember this: there was a bunch of sure. over a thousand companies that pulled millions of dollars on advertising to protest uh, the spread of hate speech, violent threats, and misinformation from Facebook platform, which has been a massive issue that they had. This is, by the way, also before that there were there was all these issues related to concerns that. Through Facebook, there was going to be a lot of could be a lot of misinformation as race to the election, and and frankly, the role that Facebook in general plays with how information can spread one, one way or the other. Now, the root issue is this: is according to Facebook's hate policy speech, derogatory sta- derogatory statements about men and white people, once again, are treated the same as anti-Semitic statements or racial epithets, right? So that's what the policy has been. So before they treated it all the same, where this when automatically detect and try to delete them, right? But civil rights activists had lobbied that Facebook needed to change its policy uh, for protecting all groups equally. Um, and specifically, black users say that hate speech policies and content moderation system failed the same people they were trying to protect. As a matter of fact, and it gets into the article we're looking at, um, got into, I think it was USA Today that was talking about this. It, it mentioned that black users, what they were doing to help avoid you know, being banned is they were resort to using a white avatar, digital slang such as um, white people, which is W-Y-P-I-P-O, 
or 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 I mean, can't even pronounce it. It's H U I T E. Uh, but basically, they would use other code words to mention white people as they were having conversation because of concerns that they were going to get detected by the Facebook algorithm right. and then get their messages but, blocked but, and deleted. But, but but then on that mentioning of white people, what's the context of the mention? I mean, are they doing demographic studies or are they insulting somebody? What's the, I think it's what's, in the context of the – I think a lot of this really was focusing in the context of – uh, over the summer, George Floyd protest and people talking about discrimination happening, yeah. right? So responding, I'm sure someone said white officers and, and things like that, right? White people, white cops, et cetera, right? Um, they also un- would operate under aliases and maintain backup accounts to avoid losing content and access to their community. And then even developed a buddy system to alert friends and followers when someone was had been sent to Facebook jail so that they could be basically uh, share the content in other, in other, in in other, other ways. accounts. Yeah. yeah. So in essence, you have... This group that has mm-hmm. been in civil rights groups that have been very active and actually pushing for Facebook to have more rules that actually prioritize different kinds of hate speech at a higher level than the way that they've been having because they treat it all the same. Because by treating it all the same, at least these groups, you know, were, were claiming that it actually penalized many of these folks that they were supposed to protect, like black people specifically. Yeah, and <clears throat> that's the part that's unclear to me as to what degree these are actually penalties. Because if you're if you're talking about white people in the context of a demographic issue, or if you're talking about it in the context of some other, you know, larger political issue that's happening, that's one thing. If you're calling somebody out because they're white, insulting them or demeaning them on the basis of their race, that's something, or a group of people on their race, it's entirely something else. Now, I think here's also some of the, variances between the platforms themselves, because I think Twitter's uh, policy is only when things like this are directed at individuals, right? Like you can have a perspective, Mm. whatever, but if it's like, if it's targeted as a, what they call targeted harassment, if it's against a given person, they take action. It seems here that Facebook is being significantly broader in terms of their whatever. I can imagine in Twitter, even if you do, if you have broad anti-Semitic speech, that they're going to have to flag that. Don't you think? I, well, I don't know because I've never made any broad anti-Semitic comments, but, but, and I, I'm sure that they would, but my point is that I guess they have like de- defined policy around the way that those, that stuff is utilized, right? So like you can have an editorial opinion sure. about whatever it may be, right or wrong, but when you attack, you know, Jesus Chavez and you call you sure. X, then they, then they kind of, um, you know, act. So my question is what, what is the actual context? Because if you're trying to come up with a white avatar or with some other cute term to insult somebody because they're white, then I think that's really terrible. I don't think you should be coming up with white avatars or coming up with other terminology. Now, if you have to do that, because every time you mention the word white, Facebook deletes your post, well, sure. that's that's a completely different thing. So I'm not, I'm not capturing exactly what the issue is. I can tell you just start with the end, you know, start at the end and work towards the the you know the, the front of it. For me, this is absolutely cringeworthy like of the highest order, especially because it seemed like they were coming from a place of, of equality and egalitarianism and actually went backwards. It's one thing to not be there and somebody just saying, hey, we should be here. It's another thing to say, hey, we have kind of this you know, egalitarian approach. Now we're going to undermine that egalitarian approach by prioritizing certain kinds of things. And look, I will tell you that part of this, like everything else in everybody's life, is a personal thing, right? As an example, I have, my wife is white. One of my sons is black, I have a black granddaughter. When I think about somebody calling my wife a stupid white woman, mm-hmm. like I would hope that there'd be something if you're going to have a rule at all, right? Sure. Now I might feel that you shouldn't have any rules, but let's assume you want to have some rules. Somebody calls my wife a stupid white woman. I would want the same action taken that if somebody called my granddaughter a stupid black girl. 
I'd want the same thing to happen to in both of those situations because I think that's in keeping with the fact that we all have human dignity and we all have that equality. And we, the insult to my granddaughter, I don't view in any worse way than the insult to my wife. Where am I wrong about that? I don't think you're. <laughs> are you done? So what, what's your? <laughs> are you done? Well, I guess yeah. Cause yes, I guess you're you're, yeah, you're cringe, cringe, right? Hundred percent, hundred percent cringe. Yeah. Um, I don't think you're wrong with that. Um, as a matter of fact, look, and I think even even Facebook agrees with you. That's why their hate speech policy does cover all of these categories, including that. Well, right? it, it did though. It does. No, it, it still does. No, no, it still does. So, so the, the 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 hate the policy is the same. How the system automatically goes and deletes accounts. Okay. That's my at point. Scale. No, no, wait, wait. Yeah. So at, at scale yeah. is what was in question here. Okay. Right? To that point. So it doesn't mean that that one is all of a sudden or that that it doesn't disagree with you or, mm-hmm. or is not in agreement with what you're saying. And I agree with you. I think both are bad. But practically speaking, my wife's insult would remain and my granddaughter's insult would go away. The practic- well, yeah, practically speaking is like what do you look at first? It's really more the way that I'm looking at. What do you automatically like? We don't even have, we don't have to have a like, conversation about that. like this one. We have to shut down immediately, right? And and to me, that question then becomes: which of those insults has a higher likelihood of actually having a worse outcome of, of something? Well, I mean, but Danger. I think, I think that's, that's what Will it comes Robinson. down to. I, I, yeah, well, I get it. I get that. I think, that's the I rationale. Think that's the rationale, right? And, and frankly, it's, on that rationale, I actually get it and I support it. Right. Because I do think that statements against like LGBTQ, LGBTQ community against Jews, potentially Muslims, like those are statements that have been shown to already come with violence that comes with them. Right. What about and, what and, about, what about of, against Christians? Sure. And, and, and but, but that's not in here. But well, I don't have what the full list is right okay. here that, that we have. But so I'm just going off basically what this, what this article pointed out. But the comment, the one that stood out to me is when someone says men are pigs. Look, I get it. If someone says that I'm a pig, that men are pig, that I'm a pig, most guys are not going to be walking around worried about that all of a sudden their life is maybe potentially in danger or they can be harmed because someone called them a pig. Even if it's another another woman or somebody else. Mm-hmm. They're just not. If I am a woman and therefore, and I'm being harassed on social and someone's making those kind of you know commentary, by definition, there's going to be a lot more concern that actual real harm can come from that. And I think that when I see this, is how I'm making the distinction of why I understand the possible need to have this kind of prioritization. The last piece about, to your point, which is what I was getting into in terms of what was was explained as some of the experience of some of the black users and them having to resort to different ways of, of using these terminologies. I agree with you. I would love to better understand the context of what they were actually saying to begin with because if ultimately what they were saying is also hate speech, I'm not supporting that. I'm not for having hate speech against men, against white people, or frankly, against anyone. But when it comes to prioritizing what has a much more higher likelihood of real, real life impact, harm immediately, I couldn't understand the logic of having a different way to say this one we can look at and analyze and you can flag it and we'll go and look at it and see if it was a real issue there or not. That's fine. This one, we got to shut it down immediately because I'm really concerned here that something violent may happen right away. And I would, I would buy that even – I might even buy that argument if, this, if it was a question of sequencing, meaning – we haven't built the mousetrap yet. We're going to start with the super egregious ones because we have great data that indicates that when we use a racial epithet against this group, sure. bad things happen at a worse degree. I still wouldn't agree with it, but I could at least understand it logically. I, I, think, gonna, I think that's the house, at least my understanding of what, of what they're done here. I could be wrong. 
Well, I, I read it exactly the opposite, which is they've deprioritized things that they already had working a particular way in an effort to raise up other ones to a level of severity. So I think they had the mousetrap and then said, well, we're catching mice that are this size and this color. We want to stop catching those and we want to only catch these. And that's where I disagree. Look, at the end of the day, for me, it's this, this goes to the point that we had in the conversation about Google. Here you have a group of, of folks who are taking actions to deprioritize, in this case, my wife, right? Um, my kids are mixed, but my wife, let's just keep it to that. And saying you're somebody racially or in some other way being rude and grotesque to you is worth less than when it happens to somebody else. And that to me ultimately communicates the fact that there are different degrees of dignity for human beings. And that A is completely false. And B is not something that I'd ever want to reinforce because I think it leads to a lot of really terrible ideologies and terrible things happening. So that's why I disagree with it. And it's kind of my, my, my scenario of, of, of a few group of, you know, a few people really impacting the way that people think. Because what about that little, that, that, that young girl or young boy coming up who does get insulted, gets called a, whatever, a white epithet or racial slur, and then his comment stays up and his little, you know, buddy in the class, theirs comes down. It's like, well, I don't know how else to read that, but, but besides like, well, I guess it doesn't matter as much for me. And it's like, I don't think that we, pull people down so that other people may rise. And I think ultimately that's what this does. And that's why I object to it, purely on philosophical grounds. Even if you can say we're, like, again, I would get it if we were building the better mousetrap, but it seems like you had the mousetrap and you undid it. And that's why it makes no sense to me. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm not sure to say that. Fair enough. At least I feel better. See, I got it off my <laughs> chest. I got it off my chest. Oh, my goodness. Uh, all right. Well, we, we covered quite a bit. Any... Um, any parting wisdom, our parting wisdom section, which always begins with you since I have no wisdom to offer. No, I think you just, you just no, you, you definitely made a, I think, good point. I mean, look, it seems like in today's episode, uh, if I want to put a theme to it, is, is nuance is, a, is probably the big one for me that stands out. Mm. When, we think about, when I think mm. about these different topics that we just talked about, right? And the, the issue is that in trying to create these sort of blanket uh, policies in in trying to create these, you know, technology algorithms to help address issues, many times what gets left behind is nuance. And you're kind of go one way to kind of uh, stop for it all or do it all at once with one blanket statement or try to parse it out. And um, yeah, I could definitely see the perspective of the last thing you just said right now, which is, are you sending the, so the wrong signal to certain mm -hmm. folks that somehow their interest, their their personal even or perceived safety is just less important than other people's, right? I, I get that. And I, I'm very empathetic to that. I can understand that being an issue. Um, but I think that's part of the challenge that we have as it relates to all, all this information that we're, that we're talking about and what Facebook is doing and kind of across the board and some of the other ones is this, this nuanced issue that becomes really, really difficult. I think out of all of these, the one that really gives me the most pause um, is probably going back to the San Diego uh, Unified School District. And, and it... It worries me that in this case, you may have a group of people that has really good intent in what they're trying to do, but in the solve that they're, that they're using try to, to, for that, for that, with that good intent, they may be creating a bigger problem uh, without actually you know, really getting at the root cause of what's causing some of these kids to have the issue that they actually are having. 
what I do think is is super important is that, and especially happening as it relates to COVID, is that you're having these kids and these dynamics that are that are at home trying to learn and not just worry about how far behind they they already were probably far behind and how much further behind they're going to be as we start coming out of this, uh, hopefully in the in the near future. And and that these gaps are only going to get you know get larger yeah. uh, if you don't start to really invest and look at the issues that are really creating those those kinds of problems. So you were a cringe on Facebook. What was your final thing on Facebook? No, I I'm more on courage. Your on that courage. One. Yeah, okay. I'm more courage because I yeah. I but I see it and this could be my literally my interpretation of what they're doing. I see it as a sequence thing Got because it. their policy itself didn't change. How they handled their automatic uh, deleting of posts. And versus the like the other reviews, and I thought I, I thought I, I didn't put it on here, but I thought I read as well that they still had the ability to be able to flag the other comments. It just wasn't an automatic, you know, right, system right, right, kind right. of deletion. It wasn't the same level of urgency. Yeah, yeah. And, and for that okay, reason, to make sure. for that reason, I put it under the courage section. Not that I'm advocating for anyone to to have hate speech. So that's what I wanted to confirm. So close, so close, Jesus. And we still, we have not had a show where we've actually agreed on everything. But I think that is actually the spirit of the- This is probably the closest one. This is the spirit- we were like- This is the spirit of the show itself, (laughs) though, right? So, um, okay. But we end up with a respectable two-thirds. Two-thirds. All right. Well, Jesus, thank you very much. Another great show. Uh, Appreciate everybody for listening. Please make sure to join us next week on another episode of TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.